Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. We're going to go to chapter 11 today, and that one is titled, The Operations of Grace and Free Will. This is a pretty long chapter, so there is the first part kind of talking about free will in relation to irresistible grace and ideas like that. We're going to go over that tonight, and then there's another section about free will and creation ex nihilo that we'll do next time. So, we're going to only cover half. Okay, as we've been talking about for the last little while, we talked about grace and different ideas of it, and also we have talked about free will before during the first book, but the angle was a little bit different because we were talking about the problems for free will in relation to if God had foreknowledge, then it would limit human free will. Now we're going to talk about this idea that we talked about a little bit last time of irresistible grace and related ideas and how that would also impinge on human free will. And a lot of people that support, you know, irresistible grace or the doctrines of original sin and predestination, a lot of people try to affirm free will and those as well. But we're going to go over tonight whether or not that can happen, and obviously we don't think so, but it's good to know why. So first, start out with kind of an introduction of the subject. So you say, in LDS thought, it is imperative that humans remain free to reject the salvation of God, even if it is God's will to save them. And because salvation entails an interpersonal relationship between us and God, it is impossible to realize that relationship without free agency, which genuinely leaves it up to us whether to respond to God's overtures of love and persuasion. So that's just introducing the topic that if the most important things in LDS thought are to be able to come to this earth, you know, and to choose freely, to choose God. And also we've talked about this importance of interpersonal relationship between us and God. And you obviously need to be free to choose into that. But there are differing views. Before we dive into it, Dad, is there anything else you want to do to introduce this subject and maybe give us kind of context of because we, we've already talked about grace a lot, so what's a new aspect that we're kind of getting into tonight? We're going to be putting together two different notions that are essential to loving interpersonal relationships. First, keep in mind the distinction between universal love, which God has for all people. He wishes them the best. He works for their best. and is always persuading them to their highest good, but he won't force them to their highest good. And the second is a relationship, a fellowship. A relationship, fellowship, is not merely one of grace where God wishes us the best. It's a relationship that is created only when we reciprocate. So one can have this unconditional love for another person, but a relationship takes two people. And the kind of relationship that God is seeking with us takes two people. The second point to keep in mind is that the Book of Mormon presents this view that what grace does for us, there is what we call prevenient grace. It's the grace that is given to us before any act of human will. And what this grace does for us is it makes it possible for us to make free choices. Now, that may be for two reasons. The Methodists had a view of prevenient grace, and what the prevenient grace did was regenerate the will. 
something that Augustine also maintained, but only after God had moved the will to accept God's grace. The Arminians moved that before accepting grace, so that what God did is he regenerated the human will and the free will that was lost in the fall. They called it the image of God as well. So in the fall, what we lost was the image of God, which is the ability to make free choices. And so what the atonement does for us is, according to Methodists, the Wesleyan brothers, for whom I have a great deal of respect, maintain that what God's prevenient grace does for us as a sheer gift is regenerates our will so that it's active, active to accept or reject God's offer of grace when it is given to us to, to save us. The Book of Mormon doesn't use those terms, and I don't believe that the Book of Mormon is teaching that the will is regenerated in the sense that I believe that what the Book of Mormon is teaching is something very different, and it is this. We can't accept an offer of loving relationship unless that offer is made. And so what God does to us is he goes first. As First John says, we love God because he loved us first. God loves us first, he chooses us first, and he makes it as free to choose the relationship that he's offering with us with him because he has made the first move to offer that love to us. We can't accept what isn't offered, and so it makes us free to accept what is freely offered. So I believe in, at least in the Book of Mormon, it's a bit different. However, the Book of Mormon does have a concept of redemption. The Book of Mormon never uses the term justification by faith or by grace, the shibboleths of Protestantism. Those are the terms of art, the magic words in Protestant theology, but they really don't appear in the Book of Mormon. Instead, the Book of Mormon has this, this term, we are redeemed from the fall. And what it means is that God is offering us our freedom so that we can be redeemed from the fall. And what happens is he offers this relationship to us. If we accept the relationship, we remain free, and then we grow in the light, and we grow in grace in what the Book of Mormon terms sanctification until the perfect day. If we don't accept the offer made by God, then we become imprisoned in, in a sense. We become unfree because we then become subject to the devil. And the devil seeks to, to not give us choice, seeks to take our freedom away. So the Book of Mormon doesn't have this notion of regenerating the will, but does have this notion of redeeming us from the effects of the fall in the sense that in the fall, what we lost was a relationship with God because we walked out on God. Adam and Eve walked out on God. They were thrown out of the garden, not because they ate the fruit, the penalty for that was death, but to keep them from partaking of the fruit of the tree of life so that they wouldn't live forever in their sins. Because if one tries to have the fruit of life before living a life, one cannot realize the experiences necessary to appreciate that fruit. So the Book of Mormon is basically taken and refiguring this notion that we are made free by the atonement. It's an important distinction. Great intro. And yeah, we'll just have you dive in now, Jacob. Go ahead with grace and free will in interpersonal relations. All right. We've covered this to some extent in the first book, but you first point out that for a person to be free in a morally significant sense, libertarians maintain that the person must be free to will to do or to refrain from willing to do an act A under all circumstances that obtain in the moment of free decision. And, and then you also say that those who are in favor of libertarian free will also have uh, reasons for rejecting the doctrines of predestination, irresistible grace, and original sin in order to fit that first definition. You say there are also additional reasons for adopting libertarian free will in the context of interpersonal relationships established through grace. 
what are some of those reasons? Well, there are a lot of reasons to adopt libertarian free will. One is because we believe that we're morally significant based upon our own immediate experience. People who say they don't believe in moral obligation or something like that still think we ought to believe whatever they think the truth is and will argue with us that we ought to believe the way they do. That, of course, is a self-defeating argument because if you've got an ought, then you've got a moral obligation. And free will is also important in the context of the ability uh, you know, to realize our natures and so forth. But the most important focus of libertarian free will is precisely what is essential to interpersonal relationships, especially within the Mormon context in particular and Christianity in general. There have been incredible efforts made within the tradition, and by the tradition I mean by Catholic theologians and Protestant theologians, and also by Muslim theologians who adopt a very strict determinism, probably something even more strict than Calvinism, and nevertheless argue that their views are consistent with free will of a significant sense. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm addressing here and saying you know, can you have an alternative notion of free will in this sense that is consistent with doctrines of predestination or irresistible grace and or original sin? And remember what original sin does. It makes it so that we can't choose to accept God in loving relationship unless he moves our will to do it. And that's the result of the fall as far as the Calvinists and Protestants see it. So the question here is, is there some alternative sense of free will that would work And why is it that libertarian free will is so important in the first place? And the most important reason is that it makes it so the things that we care about most as human beings, genuine, and then I'm emphasizing the word genuine here, genuine relationships. We can have the kind of relationships that it appears the zombies who have no minds have, which is zero relationship and just kind of a, you know, circling in in the same solar system. But what we're talking about are deep, meaningful relationships of the kind of an I-thou relationship where the thou gives itself to the person first because we're called by the other first, and then we give ourselves to the thou, and it is a sense of mutual giving and, and, and receiving gifts of grace in relationship. And this type of relationship is essential because the moment that one gets a sense that the person is in relationship isn't free in that relationship, what we've demonstrated is that there's really no relationship at all. Saltz gives this comment that, you know, the easiest and quickest way to convince a person that the love that is being expressed for that person is not genuine is to tell them that there was some external reason, some cause or something that, uh, that required that the person who says that they love you loved you. We would conclude very quickly that the love isn't genuine. It's because of some force or reason or deterministic explanation external to the person that fully explains why they they seem to love us, but in fact it's just a happenstance of the circumstances as to why it appears that they would love us when we find out that it's really not genuine. All right. Uh, You also consider uh, another point of context of interpersonal relationships in saying that, you know, within its very modality, something an interpersonal relationship is something an agent does rather than something that happens to the agent. You give an example when jumping off a diving board, I make the choice to do so. When falling off the diving board, something happens to me. And this um, is very reminiscent of the second chapter of Second Nephi, you know, about acting and not being acted upon. 
Yeah, it's a very significant part of Second Nephi because essentially Lehi there is parsing the world into two kinds of things, those that are determined and acted upon by other things to do what they do, and those that act for themselves. Lehi seems to be asserting what we would now call a form of agent causation. That is, there is no full explanation outside of the agent him or herself as to why they make the decision they do. They make the decision they do because that's their choice. And there's no explanation without including this basic power of an agent to make a choice. If one is a determinist, then there are reasons external to the agent that fully explain why the agent made the choice. And therefore, it really isn't the choice of the agent in an ultimate sense. It's really fully explained as something other than the agent that causes the choice to be made. Okay. And you say that because of what we've discussed before, where, you know, the the fact that God is first offering the relationship, this is empowering us or, or any other agent to choose in the sense that, you know, makes us free and makes it possible to accept that offer. You say that because of this, it seems there's a kernel of truth in the Augustinian notion of the regeneration of the human will of grace. Explain why that is. As I said earlier, Augustine maintained that we suffer from a a form of sinfulness which makes it impossible for us to choose to do good in this sense, in a restricted sense of choosing to accept the relationship of love offered to us by God, unless God first moves our obstinate wills to do against their will what we otherwise wouldn't do. However, once God has done that, he regenerates our free will to be able to choose freely. Now, the early Augustine had a different view than the later Augustine, and on this view, I'm not sure Augustine was totally consistent. But the bottom line is is that for Augustine, it's only after this irresistible grace has acted upon us that our will is revived, if you will, regenerated, so that we can make free choices seems to come a bit too late in the process of entering into a genuine relationship. However, this notion that the will has been regenerated seems to me to be a genuine insight. Yeah, hence there's the, the kernel of truth there. It's in there. Maybe the you know the whole process isn't very consistent, but that, that kernel of truth is in there somewhere. Right. And the question is, you know, there's a real distinction between God enabling or empowering my will so that I can choose and God moving my will so that he makes the decision for me. That's that's the decisive distinction. Okay. All right. You also go on to say that interpersonal relationships involve the heart and soul, for the value offered is not something of value besides oneself. It is precisely oneself, one's entire heart, might, mind, and strength. Thus the relationship cannot be brought about unilaterally by its very nature, for the interpersonal relationship consists precisely in the free and gracious giving of each to the other. I think that's a, a good summation there of the grace and free will in the interpersonal relations. Yeah, and I think what we're, we're saying here is that the decision to accept the relationship isn't, oh, you know, somebody hands you a gift and you say thank you. This relationship is offered and calls to us to be something other and more than we are. It asks of us. You know, it's like if you give me a piece of bubble gum, you want your dime for the bubble gum. But this offer is made to us freely, and we accept it freely. Nevertheless, what is being given on both sides is of ultimate value, incomparable value, a value that is really of such great height that it can't be comparable. We, we could use the term incommensurate 
because the value can't be compared with anything else because it's outside of that category. We can't compare the value of a human life to the value, for instance, of a bell of hay. That's a misunderstanding of the nature of the value at issue. And what God is asking of us is everything we have and are. He wants our entire heart, mind, and strength. But God has already given us everything he is and before we are in this relationship. He's offering that to us. So the relationship can't be brought about unilaterally, and it calls for everything that we are in response to the relationship. It's To put it this way, it's the kind of relationship that the best analogy is a relationship between a husband and a wife where you're all in and you haven't kept the key to the back door, and you're so absolutely committed to the relationship that there's no thought of ever ending the relationship, stopping the relationship, fudging on the relationship, breaking the relationship, or anything of that sort. All right. Yeah. And the way you were describing the, the different relationships, uh, just what I was picturing in my mind is if you're going up a cliff and God is higher than you, it's not the relationship where he just comes down, picks you up, and lifts you up. It's him extending the hand reaching down i mean and this is on an infinite scale of being able to lift us up we can't grapple onto that arm unless we make the reach ourselves to to join into the relationship right he makes the first move but he can't he can't complete the relationship without us i, I think that's the fundamental failure of protestantism and um, of that form of catholicism that actually goes along with augustine and one reading of aquinas and that is that the relationship is not a relationship at all because one person is controlling everything in the relationship, which means it's no relationship. Uh, it also reminds me of the scripture, um, his hand is outstretched still. It's not his hand, it's still grabbing and dragging you. It's outstretched, inviting you into the relationship. Excellent. Uh, well, with that, we'll go ahead and move on with Corey to free will and irresistible grace. All right, um, and just kind of as a reminder preface before I read this quote. So in the tradition, if you accept the traditional interpretation of original sin and the fall, then it's not just a situation where people, like, like I guess what I'm saying is irresistible grace is kind of entailed in that because in the concept of original sin, after the fall, humans became depraved and carnal and they literally did not have the ability or the freedom to choose to accept God or do anything good, really, at that point. It, it was kind of like they lost freedom, and in this view, God's going to give them some semblance of, I guess it's more salvation than freedom, but the idea of irresistible grace is, well, I'll, just, I'll read this quote to get to that part. So, with irresistible grace, God is the sole agent involved, given that the agent would not have faith and choose God on his or her own, because of what we just talked about, only a type of force that acts contrary to the agent's natural beliefs, desires, and wants can accomplish salvation. Thus, the divine action on the human will is coercive in the sense that it acts contrary to the person's beliefs, desires, and wants that incline the will to choose. And they justify it by saying, like, well, uh, Otherwise, you couldn't choose. You don't have a choice unless God forces you to have his grace. So am I getting that right, or what else you want to say about that? I think that's basically what it entails. The 
many Protestants, of course, would like to reject that view and say, well, it really doesn't follow from the fact that our wills are being moved by God in the sense that he gives us grace and we accept it, that therefore we're not free. They make arguments to the effect that, you know, God is really interacting with us. The famous quote by Calvin is, is, you know, God didn't act on stones and trees. He acted on human beings to accept his will. And so what he's pointing out is, well, human beings have minds. And I think what Calvin means to say is God is forming our minds in such a way that we come to the conclusion that we accept his grace. And so God's working at a different level. He's merely giving us the causes that form our ideas in mind. He's not making our mind up for us. I've never been able to see a distinction, but I think that's the distinction he wanted to make. In my view, that's a difference without a distinction. But there are a lot of Protestants and Catholics who want to reject the notion that their view would entail the denial of free will. Good clarification. And next, we're going to kind of move on to some defenses of that. All right, so we have John S. Feinberg, who is defending this idea of irresistible grace and free will. So he explains that reasons act as causes that decisively incline the will to accept God's grace. Basically, he says, God can guarantee that his goals will be accomplished freely even when someone does not want to do the act because God's eternal decree includes not only God's chosen ends but also the means to such ends. In other words, the means include whatever circumstances and factors are necessary to convince the individual, without constraint, in his view, that the act God has decreed is the act she or he wants to do and given sufficient conditions, the person will do the act. So I think this is very important to talk about, especially in a Mormon context, and I won't name names, but when we've talked about amongst our own family, I've heard this type of, or I guess we were mostly talking about foreknowledge and stuff like that, but I've heard this type of defense from LDS people as well, saying that, well, you know, what if God basically is creating everything and in a way that is making it so that when you come to a specific decision, he knows you so well that he created a world or modeled it so that when you got there, you had a very clear choice and basically he knew what you were going to do. So he presented you with something and then you did it and it's like, yay, that's still a little bit softer than what Feinberg's saying here, but it's the same thing with grace. It's just saying like, I will create the perfect conditions and then your will will be this. And I don't know, what are kind of the nuances of how that's not good? Well, I think he's got two different ideas here that are really incompatible. The first idea is that God isn't, I mean, he talks about God's will always being realized because what we have is this decree before the world about how things will be and everything aligns with God's decree. But we're still free in his view, and here's why we're free, and that is that the way God aligns the world is a world in which we will find persuasive and decisive In the circumstances, um, when presented with the choice, that we will choose the way God wants us to. So let's say that God wants me not to choose grace, because Fiber actually believes there are such people who don't find God's offer of grace convincing. And so God has placed those that he doesn't choose to save or those that he chooses to damn, depending on whether you believe are single or double predestination. God has placed us in the circumstances where God will offer us the grace, but the reasons for accepting the grace for this person won't be decisive because God has decided that the circumstances of that person's life will be such that whatever circumstances they're in, the reasons for accepting that grace won't be decisive. Now, what underlies this argument? 
Feinberg is really relying on a, on a principle that is well established in philosophy, and that is the principle of sufficient reason. So the notion is something like this. Everything that we do, we do because we have reasons to do it. And if I decide to do something, I must have some reasons that I find sufficient for me to make the decision to do what I'm doing. And so we all have sufficient reasons to do what we do. So whatever there are in the circumstances that lead us to conclude that it's rational and reasonable to do what I do, then the principle of sufficient reason explains why that's the case. Now, I could reframe this in another way. Because it's really false that we act according to sufficient reason. We're unreasonable all the time. And one of the things that makes it possible for us to sin is that we can be irrational. It's always irrational to sin. It's always irrational to reject God. But he would say, well, God's going to keep you ignorant of several crucial features that would make it reasonable for you to accept God's grace. Like, oh, by the way, he's in charge. And if you don't accept it, you're losing out on the most valuable thing in the universe. But those reasons could be presented to that person by a missionary. They're just not going to hit home for some reason. So he's got this strong notion of the principle of sufficient reason in mind when he's talking about this. But what he really, and, and what people who use the principle of sufficient reason in this way are really doing is saying there's sufficient causes for everything, and the causes determine what will occur. It's just that reasons act as causes. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it sounds exactly like causal determinism, basically. It's, it's saying, like, you know, the reason that you're about to make a decision is because of all these reasons in your life. Some of them you're in control of, some of them you're aware of. And then causal determinism just adds the extra layer of the underlying things that you're not necessarily consciously control of, of like, you know, all the little brain activity and your neurons and your biology and all that. So, I mean, it, it boils down to kind of the same thing in my view. It does in my view as well. And what we get is what's called reductionism, where everything ultimately on this view is explained by reasons completely outside of the control of the person making the decision and really outside of their ability to even appreciate what the reasons are. On this view, in our modern world, everything would reduce to the environmental and genetic factors that go into our brain's activity as it's acted upon at the neuromicrobiological level. But I don't know what the chemistry of my brain is, and I don't know what the microbiological level of my brain is, but if it's resulting in everything that I do outside of my control, then I'm simply not free. And it's simply false that people actually act rationally or that they act on reason. So he can't be presenting the notion of sufficient reason in the sense that, oh, they've provided to me a persuasive reason for doing this. And as I've assessed this, it's very rational and reasonable. And I can't see how it could possibly be irrational to refrain from rejecting God's grace. And so I'm going to reject God's grace. There's just reasons and, and causes here. It's an abuse of the term, quote, reasons in this argument, in my opinion. It's an equivocation and falters on the logical error of equivocation. But more importantly, if we look at what he's really saying, what he's saying is, look, I would choose on my own always to reject God, so there are reasons, ultimately outside of my reasoning process, that fully explain why I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And so at the end of the day, I do what I do because of things that over which I have no control, but if I have no control over them, it's clearly not something I do freely at least clearly in my view. And so I just think that the argument by Feinberg is an abusive terminology it commits numerous logical errors, and, and, you know, on its face, it's kind of ridiculous, and I don't think it gets any better with his explanations, suggesting that my wants, beliefs, and desires are a result of God's causal activity. The problem is it's God's decision about what I'm going to find persuasive, not mine. <laughs> so all the way, it's, you know, there's a way we say this, it's turtles all the way down. Well, it's just determinism outside of my control all the way down on this view as well.
So it's not something that I find even remotely persuasive, and I don't think that it can explain in any way how we can both be acted upon by irresistible grace against our will and also be acting freely. Also, you say the notion that God decisively inclines the will also raises the specter of the problem of evil, which we've talked about before, so I won't go into it. If you don't know what it is, Google it. But anyway, it raises the question, why doesn't God decisively incline everyone to will to do good and recognize him as God. If someone rapes, murders, or steals in this view, it is because God willed these acts as part of his all-inclusive decree that ordains all things that occur. Then, I mean, this is related to what we're going to talk about later about creation ex nihilo, but basically God is the one ultimately saying who's going to choose God and do good or not, then yeah, like how is he not personally responsible for that? Again, they would fall back on the argument that we already discussed last time. Well, if salvation is a gift, and God has no obligation to give you, so you can't complain if he doesn't save you. That, too, just doesn't seem to realize what it means to say that God is loving. More importantly, any rational person, in my view, is going to come to the conclusion that if God is bringing about the kind of things like rape, murder, and stealing, and so forth, then a person would be liable or responsible for those kinds of things. If God's really the ultimate cause, I can't see any reason not to hold him liable and responsible for those things. All right, and then kind of another notion that I've heard a form of also from LDS people to defend certain things. They say, according to the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards, there is in God a revealed will by which he disapproves and opposes moral evil as contrary to his nature. So, you know, that's what all the rules, the Ten Commandments, is like, you know, this is the way I believe. But then he also says there's a secret will by which he wills and determines all moral evils that in fact occur as a means of achieving his purposes. And darn, the secret is now out because Jonathan Edwards told us the secret. Exactly. So, I don't know. Yeah, like I said, I've, I've heard that idea a lot. Look, I have the greatest respect for Jonathan Edwards, who's actually a fabulous theologian, one of the first American theologians. And his writings are scintillating. They're well done. He's a first-rate mind. I don't, I don't mean to, you know, act like he was just a little kid who was obviously off base. But you know, given his Calvinist background, I think he did the best that he could. It's just that, it, you know, when you think about it, it's like, okay, God has the secret will that allows all kinds of evils to occur, including the evil decisions I make. But he has this revealed will that I shouldn't do any of those things. So if I succeed in obeying God's revealed will, I'm actually going to act against his secret will about what truly happens. If contrary to fact, I could do that. And it just the whole thing just doesn't really make any sense to me. But again, I want to emphasize, you ought to read Jonathan Edwards for yourself. It's well worth your time, and he is a really great theologian. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much just going briefly over the things in that section that I think feel like we didn't go over in the last few podcasts. We've talked a lot about grace before, and so those are just some new aspects. Anyway, one last section on grace here. Have Jacob take that as concurring grace. All right. Now, Thomas Aquinas recognized that given creation ex nihilo, it is not in the nature of created beings to exist. Thus, in each moment of existence, God, in effect, recreates the entire world and all of its constituents ex nihilo. I kind of had a question on that because... Why does he think that God has to recreate the world in every moment of existence rather than just supporting what he's already caused to come into existence? Thomas Aquinas actually taught a form of concurrence, but he also adopted a view that God sustains the world in existence from moment to moment. So 
come from his mindset. God creates everything out of nothing. The natural state of the world without his creative activity is nothing. And so everything he creates in his natural state tends toward nothingness. So if God didn't sustain me in each moment, I would wink out of existence. And this is essential to grasp. Because God has created me out of nothing, my natural state is to not exist. So if God doesn't take action to sustain his creation in existence, every bit of it, from moment to moment, it simply ceases to exist. The world exists not merely because of a one-time creation and everything just goes on its way. That's deism. God sustains the world in existence from moment to moment. This is a feature of Catholic and Protestant theology that very few people pay attention to. And they argue that we shouldn't adopt occasionalism because it has far-reaching effects for one's view on, on what is happening in the world, who's doing what in the world. But occasionalism, it tells that no reality that God can exercise causal power, and therefore there can't be any second causation in nature or any action or free will exercise by humans. Here's why. Let's say that you are nailing a board together, and you're doing it using a hammer, and you're hitting the nail, and you think that hitting the nail is the causal power that drives the nail into the wood. But think about this from the position of occasionalism. So God creates you in each moment brand new, as if though the hammer comes down. But he also creates the nail in each moment, at each level of the wood, brand new in its entirety as the nail goes down. What's making the nail to be in the position that it is and how deep it is in the wood isn't the result of the causal power of the hammer driving the nail into the wood. It's because God creates it brand new in that position in each moment. That's occasionalism. Given occasionalism, there are no secondary causes in nature. And so we're talking about there's no causal power that is done by anything but God that actually causes the world to be what it is. That's really essential. The other view, what Christians want to argue, is they can maintain this notion of sustenance and creation ex nihilo, but it doesn't entail this result. I believe it does, but they want to argue that what it entails instead is conservationism, or the position that gods create substances along with both their active and causal powers. So what is this? So you're a person, and you have muscles and sinews and an intent to drive the nail into the wood. You also have a hammer, which exerts a certain amount of physical force. They would like to argue, well, it's these things that describe causally what causal powers are brought to bear to drive the nail into the wood. And they want to say that created substances are genuine agents that have their own causal powers given to them by God. And so we have these general causal powers because God has created us with these causal powers. So the power of water to freeze at 32 degrees Fahrenheit is because of the nature of the things that are created. And the nail is is the depth in the wood because there's some kind of secondary causation. What it fails to respond to is what's entailed in the notion of creation ex nihilo and the notion of sustenance of creation in each moment. They haven't really dealt with the argument, in my view, and they fail to realize the logical entailments that are involved in their view of creation ex nihilo and basically the conservation in existence. It's not conservation. In other words, here's why conservation is wrong, and the view that I've just expressed is correct. In conservation, I continue to exist because of my own causal powers, And my causal powers, therefore, continue to exert power in the next moment. 
the problem with that is that it's not my nature to exist, and so my natural state would be to wink out of existence if God didn't act me to keep me in existence. I don't endure from one moment to the other. God sustains me from one moment to the other by creating what I am, everything about me. And so I think that this notion hasn't paid sufficient attention to the fact that when we look at what's entailed in the notion of creation ex nihilo and what the nature of created substances is, there isn't any space for created beings to have their own. They, they, can, they can be created with power, they just couldn't exercise it. Because in every moment, everything is created exactly the way it is in every single respect, every aspect of the world. Let's do a, a thought experiment. God creates the world, and it goes up until 10 minutes ago. And then it ceases to exist entirely for 10 minutes. And then he creates the world brand new, everything about it, after 10 minutes has lapsed, and amazingly creates in you all of these memories as if though you had been there for the 10 minutes, and places in your memory, memories about what happened during that 10 minutes. Now, from your perspective, it would be identical. You wouldn't be able to tell, you wouldn't know, there would be no way to detect that the world didn't exist for 10 minutes. Once you get this thought experiment, you can see, well, what is it that the world is created and then it ceases to exist because that's its nature, and then God recreates it in every single moment. So if I ask, well, what did you cause during the 10 minutes that the world didn't exist? And the answer is nothing because you had no causal powers. It's the same thing here because God is recreating the world. Say he does this every 10 minutes now and, and he creates it for one second. And then after every, once every 10 minutes, he recreates the world and creates you with all of your memories. So for the second, you have all these memories, you wink out of existence, and then he creates you again with all the memories as if though you had existed, which is exactly what I'm arguing. There would be no difference between this and occasionalism, by the way, and we would have no way of telling, but that's exactly what I'm asserting is occurring with creation ex nihilo. God is recreating the world in each moment, and there's no causal relation between the substances from one moment to the next. God is simply creating everything about the world. If that's difficult to understand, well, it's a difficult notion. And let me make sure I understand it correctly. The reason that God has to recreate us and everything in every